Father, thank You for the blessing of Your great divine favor, the blessing of salvation, the blessing, Father, of knowing that You not only see our plight, but You hear our prayers. Lord, this morning we invite You to open the eyes of our hearts that we might receive from You. Give us insight. Give us understanding. And most of all, Father, transform our hearts into the image of Christ. And we lift this time up to you in the name of Jesus. Amen. We're continuing in the story of David, but this morning I want to kind of finalize the, the uh, person of King Saul. Uh, the overall kind of title of this series is uh, the story of David from, tri- from trage- triumph to tragedy. And, and certainly that would be true of Saul, one who goes from triumph to tragedy. And as we look at the life of King Saul here in chapter 18, it's a passage that we read a little bit of last week. I want to encourage you to continue to read through the book of 1 Samuel chapter 18 and on, and also into 2 Samuel. And uh, I want to address just a couple of problematic questions that people have had and uh, verses that just kind of jump off the page and say, what in the world is going on here? I want to talk about those just a little bit in just a moment here uh, so that we have a good understanding of that. But really this story, if you'll remember, kind of goes like this. Um, Samuel is the first prophet. He is the, uh, I say first prophet, it's the first official office of the prophet. He's the priest, he's the judge, and he will be the last judge. And because the people begin to cry out that they want their own king, God allows Samuel to appoint Saul uh, as king. He's kind of the people's choice. He's the good-looking guy. He's the tall guy. But other than that, he really has no qualifications whatsoever. He is blessed with this position, though he has not earned it. So he starts off with a blessing. And from there, he gains, right after he comes into the kingship, a great battle, a great victory. So he receives blessing. He receives victory. But then he begins to call what I, what I would say presume upon the mercies of God. That, you know what, I've been blessed. I've had some success. The people like me. There's some battles to be fought. And he begins to become impatient. He begins to presume upon the mercies of God. And when he's told uh, that he cannot do a sacrifice, that that's only for the priest, he goes ahead and does it anyway to try to get the blessing and the favor of God and to go on into battle. When he's told to wait, he doesn't wait. And time after time after time, he's disobedient to God. Sometimes completely, sometimes partially. And we never really see a spirit of repentance. And the consequences of his sins comes to account. It comes to that place where he has to give an account for them. And we never really see a true repentance. It's, I got caught. And okay, when I'm back into a corner, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, I shouldn't have done that. Now let's move on. But we don't see real repentance. And from there, we see Saul kind of slip into envy. Because of the consequences of his sin, God tells him, Look, you know what? Your, this kingship will not reside in your family forever. I am going to bring someone else in. Someone who will listen. Someone who has a heart for me and a heart for my will. And so he makes that a fact. And at that point, Saul has the decision to make. Hey, I've messed up. I've blown it. But I'm going to embrace God. And God can still use me. 
God can still use the kingdom and this is not the way I would have foreseen things working out. This is not my desire, but God, I will trust you. And that's exactly what his son Jonathan does. Though Jonathan would have been the heir to the throne, though he would have had the most to lose, he embraces God's will. You almost see that picture. The embracing of God's will and the rejection and utter resistance to the will of God. We see Jonathan embracing David, embracing the will of God. And we see Saul rejecting, manipulating, and fighting against it. And so what happens? Saul becomes envious because he cannot accept that his sin has consequences. He cannot accept that God is going to use someone else. And so he begins to fight against God, literally fight against His will to seek to destroy God's anointed David. And he's so envious, the Bible tells us, he's so jealous that he can only see through those eyes. He becomes obsessed, addicted to keeping his kingdom, and it utterly will lead to destruction of his life and of his family. And that's the story of King Saul right there. And I think it's one that we have to wake up and see that could be very real for many of us. You know, this week something happened that's never happened in history. The Texas Rangers yesterday won a playoff game at home. Never happened in the history of the organization. Not even in Washington, D.C. when they were the Senators back in the 60s, before I was born, I'm sure. And I mean, it was a long time ago. It's never happened. You know, they went to Tampa Bay and they won three games there, but they didn't win a home game until yesterday. But, you know, when they, uh, when they won the original series, you know, there's a guy named Josh Hamilton that many of you, if you've ever watched a Texas ball game, then you're familiar with at least Josh Hamilton. And Josh Hamilton has one of those stories of triumph to tragedy and now hopefully back to triumph. I mean, out of high school. High school, mind you. He's the number one draft choice out of high school. So he's a high school senior and they go, we will take you above every other player in America today. He was considered to be a five-tool athlete, okay? And ladies, ask what, ladies or, or husbands, ask your wife what that means. If you don't know, and I'd be happy to explain it to you later. But it, it's very rare. And so he is so, uh, he is so paraded. Uh, he is given a large sum of money as he signs, but he's not able to handle it. And drugs and alcohol literally destroy him and his career. I'm talking about he's out of baseball He's lost his wife. He's lost his children. He's literally living in a mobile home with no job, no money, on a continual binge, being drunk and doing drugs, and and at the point to where they're going to make him get out of the mobile home. I mean, that's where he is. This guy who was selected first right out of high school, regarded as the best prospect in America out of high school, who signs a huge contract, at least by minister's salary. It is huge. You know what I mean? And for most of you, too, it's millions of dollars. And now he's in a mobile home with some guy who's a junkie who doesn't know well and lost everything. And God gets a hold of him and brings him back. And, and, uh, and you know the story. And I'm watching after the playoffs. My brother and I are watching this game on this, as they won the series. And um, we're watching... And when the, when the game's over, uh, they go to the locker room, and we see all these bottles. And normally it's champagne, and, and we go, look, they got Mountain Dew. <laughs> that's kind of cool. I said, I bet that's for Josh Hamilton. It turns out what Mountain Dew, it was um, a ginger ale. 
And the reason was is when they won the, um, the division, Josh Hamilton, instead of being a part of that, because he knows, look, I am seriously addicted to substances, particularly alcohol. I am an alcoholic. I can't be around it. If I get it on my lips, I've already had one mishap where I fell back because I, because I thought I would be okay one night to go have a few drinks. I can't do it. I am alcoholic. I'm addicted. And, uh, and incidentally, I was, I was with a guy last night, uh, a guy that comes to our church who's a former professional athlete. Same thing. He goes, I'm an alcoholic. He said, if I had a glass of wine right now, he said, I'd probably be okay, but then I'd do it tomorrow. He said, in 30 days, I'd be off the wagon. He said, like, completely, uh, I would be on a binge. He goes, and that's just it. Yeah, I, can't, I can't touch it. And Josh Hamilton came to that reality. Look, I, I can't be around it. I can't put it on my lips. I can't have it sprayed in my face. I can't do it. And, and it was neat to see his team, teammates respect that. But here's a man who recognizes, look, I, I've been there before. And I know what it means to, to endure the tragedy. And that's exactly where I will go back if I think, hey, I can do this. I'm strong enough. I can overcome this. I'm a big guy. I can make it. He goes, I know where that leads me. It leads me to a tragic place that I don't want to go. And I'm not willing to pay the price. And I'm willing to stand for my faith and recognize my deficiencies and my weaknesses. That's a great picture. That's a great picture of what Saul should have done, but he couldn't do it. He couldn't come to that place. Well, as we get ready to read this text right here in chapter 18, I want to point out a few things First of all, let's talk about the will of God. And let me just state to you right up front, I recognize that not everybody will see it like I see it, and there are ministers very close by who will see this differently than I do. And and I totally respect that. I totally get that. As I told you before, at least 20% of my theology is wrong. If I knew what it was, I'd correct it. Okay, but we and we all are all that way. We are all fallible. Every pastor that you know is fallible. We sometimes make mistakes. We sometimes misinterpret. We will never do that, hopefully purposefully, but sometimes that happens. Okay, and I'm going to give you my understanding. I'm going to give you my viewpoint. That what, I, what which I believe, and you certainly will have guys that disagree, and I respect them. Think God uses them mightily. Okay, but I'm going to give you my my position on this. First of all, when we talk about the will of God, I believe there are three aspects of the will of God. First of all, which is universally understood, and everybody agrees with this unanimously in Christendom, at least in evangelical Christendom. Number one, that there are things that are decreed by God. There's the decreed will of God. You may want to call it the prescriptive will of God. In other words, these things are going to happen. They're going to occur. The death, the burial, the resurrection of Christ. Jesus is coming again. All have sinned but fallen short of the glory of God. There will be a judgment. The Word of God is infallible. We believe these things are decreed. They're going to happen. They're stated, and there's no changing them. Okay? They're prescriptive. Alright? So there are some things that that is true. But number two, there's the moral will of God. The moral will of God certainly would be the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not commit adultery. They're the moral principles that God has established for us as believers that He desires for us to obey. This is God's will. It doesn't mean that we will always do it. But it means that it is His will. Okay? It's not, uh, it's not, in my opinion, prescripted that I have to break the will of God or that I have to not follow the moral law. But sometimes that's exactly what happens. We all sin. The third one would be the permissive will of God. Under the permissive will of God, it's any time I don't observe the moral will of God. 
God permits it to happen. He doesn't make it happen. He doesn't force it to happen. But it occurs because of my disobedience. And God allows me to stay on this earth and live without Him zapping me or, take, or, or, or experience utter destruction immediately. It's under the permissive will of God. So in other words, when I sin, it is not the desired will of God, but it is permitted to occur. Much like you do when you allow a teenager to drive and realizing that he's going to speed and eventually have an accident. Sorry, I didn't mean to throw that in there. But anyway, we permit those things to happen. It's not our desired will, but you know what? At some point, this is probably going to happen. I wish it, I wish it wouldn't, wish it didn't, but it probably will. Okay? doesn't mean that i gone out there and made it happen, but in fact, I did give them the keys, didn't I? Okay, so, but there's a difference you see there. Okay, with that understanding, again, you're free to send emails and disagree. And I can point you to people who totally disagree with me. They're plentiful. Some of them are even smarter than me. Some of them will say that they know they're right. Uh, I disagree. I'd encourage you to go to the church where somebody who says they're wrong. But anyway, let's move on here. Um, some of us are just wrong and know it. Others are wrong and have no idea. So, uh, number two. When we're looking at language, we're going to look at a couple of problematic passages of Scripture. One that is very problematic. Some of you have already uh, said, what's going on here? I want you to understand, in Old Testament language, there are three different forms of language that are used in the Old Testament. The first one would be called phenomenal language. Phenomenal language. And if I try to modernize that, I would say, let's suppose I'm in a restaurant after church, and I'm in that restaurant with my family, and there's somebody next to me that just goes nuts. I mean, they begin to yell and scream and get mad at the, the waiter or the waitress and make a big scene. And I might say, that guy's possessed. That guy, I don't know if that guy's got a demon or what's wrong with him. That might be a loose form of phenomenal language. In the Scripture, uh, when, when we see something occur, sometimes they will use what we call phenomenal language. We know this exists. And by the way... Uh, as we look at this language, virtually every evangelical uh, scholar and pastor in America, educated pastor in America, will say, you know what, there are different forms of language used in the Bible. We know there's poetry used. We know there's allegory used. We know there are parables used. We know there's hyperbole used. And there's literal language. And, and we all agree with that. If you only think there, there are only literal passages, then you, most of you should not have hands or eyes because you should have cut your hands off when you sinned and poked your eyes out when you lusted or looked at something you shouldn't have done. So let's just agree that there are some things that are, are used descriptively of what's going on. Okay? So the second form of language would be literal language, just like we talked about. Some things are just plain and literal, and we interpret them that way. And then the third form would be spiritual. Now, a lot of the early church fathers, Origen, and a lot of the patristic fathers took this position, that the Bible is describing, a lot, often through stories, uh, the presence of God and the presence of evil. Good versus evil. This is what we should do. This is what we shouldn't do. Here's a picture of good. Here's a picture of bad. All right? Kind of a spiritual language. All right, with that understanding, I want us to read this passage here in the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 18, beginning with the sixth verse. So if you have your Bibles, this is a question, quite frankly, that will be posed to you. If you... Uh, if you talk about spiritual and theological things enough with people who don't know Christ, with people who are, uh, might even regard themselves as agnostic, if they study, this is a question you will be asked. This is a passage that if you get up and look it on the Internet, that um, atheists and agnostics will just kind of throw out there and rant and rave about. Okay, And here it is. And if you're a Christian, the first time I saw this in verse 10 here, it was very disturbing to me. I want us to look at this carefully. And uh, again, this is the story of Saul 
And the story of David, David has just got through um, slaying Goliath in verse 6. And when the men were returning from home after David had killed the Philistine, the women came out from all the towns of Israel to meet King Saul with singing and dancing and joyful songs, with tambourines, lutes, and they danced and they sang. Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousand. And Saul was very angry. This really disturbed Saul. And from this point on, that spirit of envy will completely cloud his judgment. He will see David and he will see him only through the eyes of jealousy and envy. Saul was angry with this refrain and it galled him. And they have credited David with 10,000. And here's a key phrase right here. I think this is a key phrase in understanding what's going on. He says, and he thought, but me. And he, but me. Look what they said about him. And look what they didn't say about me. Or look what they did say about me. Look at him, but what about me? It's that kind of self-pity mentality. It's that jealousy mentality. What about me? Look at him, but what about me? But me with only a thousand. Him with ten thousand, but they only said a thousand about me. Sounds like a little boy, doesn't he? Some of us never grow up. What more can he get but the kingdom? And from that time on, Saul kept a jealous eye on David. That's the lens for which he will see not just David, but all of life. It completely consumes him. Envy is often the beginning of the end if you let it take root. And we see that as true in the life of David. He can only see David through the eyes of jealousy. And what's interesting, now he has that spirit of jealousy, that spirit of envy is his main driving component in his life. What do we see very next in this very next verse? Verse 10 says this, The next day an evil spirit from God came forcefully upon Saul as he was prophesying his house while David was playing the harp as he usually did. Now there it is. There's the hard verse. We see this type of phraseology used a couple of times in Scripture. But we said that Saul was consumed with the spirit of envy, consumed with the spirit of jealousy. And then we see the next day an evil spirit from God came forcefully upon Saul. Wow. Now what do I do with that? Hey, there's the big question. If you've been a Christian long enough, you've studied long enough, you've talked to enough people, that question has come up. What does it mean when God sends evil spirits on people? What does that mean? Let me give you a couple of thoughts. Let me give you some interpretations. Number one, that evil spirit I want us to keep in context came as a result, or excuse me, came on the heels of what? Number one, Saul has been continually disobedient. He is not accepting God's anointed. You've got Jonathan on the other hand who says, you know what? I recognize that God's favor, God's blessing, and God's anointing is upon David. I accept him as king. I have the most to lose because I would have been the king. My father's already king. He's getting up in early age, in latter age of his life. But if this is what God wants, I embrace it. I accept it. So that's you see the character and the the, the godliness 
of Jonathan. Saul, on the other hand, says, No, I will not accept it, God. This may be what you decreed. This may be what you want. But I will not accept it. Matter of fact, this is when God has decreed this is going to happen. So he's not going to change it. But he will work the rest of his life to try to stop God to do exactly the opposite of what God wants him to do and to destroy God's anointing. So you see, certainly a spiritual period, uh, a spiritual message, so to speak, here. A spiritual illustration. You see Jonathan embracing you see Paul seeking, or excuse me, you see Saul seeking to destroy, to uh, rid himself of God's will, of God's anointed here. So we see that occurring. Then it says, because of that's where he is, I'm only going to see him with jealous eyes. And the Bible says that three times covertly he tries to kill David. That's why he keeps sending him into the field to fight. That's why he tells him, go kill a hundred Philistines and then I'll give you my daughter. He keeps hoping the Philistines, he'll catch a spear, he'll catch an arrow on the field, which was quite normal. If you kept going into battle enough times, uh, particularly in that day and age, you were eventually going to get killed. And he would send him off into situations where the enemy was superior, but it didn't happen. David keeps being successful, which grows his popularity, which makes Saul even more paranoid and more angry and more upset. And so this next day, the spirit, the evil spirit from God comes upon Saul. So what's going on there? Well, a couple of things. Number one, first of all, uh, it could be that there was literally an evil spirit that God sent. God said, all right, evil spirit, go get him. That could be what's happening there. And that, I certainly am okay with that interpretation. It's not the one that I favor, but it certainly could happen. God is sovereign. He's the sovereign God of the universe, and if He wants to use demons or anything else for His prerogative, He is certainly, uh, certainly can do so. So that's one uh, particular interpretation some might have. Another one would be this, that the Spirit of God that came from Saul was God released and removed the hedge of protection. The blessing and the favor we know has already been removed. And now Saul is continuing to fight against God. And God says, you know what? If that's the direction you're going to go, if you're not going to accept me, then I also will remove my protection from you. You're already consumed with jealousy. Satan is already knocking on the door. I'm removing the hedge. Just walk on in. That is certainly, I think, a very valid interpretation, a possible interpretation uh, the third one would be, in fact, uh, that the evil spirit from Saul is simply that Saul has fully embraced his spirit, his flesh, and that he has basically completely shut God out. And that disturbed mindset, whether it's de- you know complete depression, whether he's become completely psychotic, whatever the case may be, uh, he's fully embraced it, and that's become who he is. Whatever your interpretation, we know this, that something has occurred. The favor of God, very specifically, has been removed from him. And whether God directly sent it or allowed it to be sent, that spirit has come upon him. Now, the next part to me is just as problematic and just difficult. Because it says what? He was prophesying in his house while David was playing the harp as he usually did. And Saul had a spear in his hand. So the very next line here says what? It says that he's prophesying in his house. Now, what does prophesying mean? A lot of debate on even what that means today in the New Testament. But let's go back in the Old Testament. There's a word that's used here in the Hebrew that has a nuance to it, depending on how it's used. Now, many will interpret it in this way. If you go to the book of Second uh, Kings, 
and uh, excuse me, in First Kings, you see the story of how Elijah uh, came against the prophets of Baal, and they offered a sacrifice, and basically kind of prove who was God. If you go back to First uh, Kings, I believe it's in chapter 22, you see how those prophets kind of lathered themselves up. They put themselves, they begin to prophesy literally what the Word says. And it was kind of a ranting and a raving, trying to lather it up, trying to work themselves into where God would hear them. Many believe and interpret that's what's happening. He's trying to get himself, lather himself up in a position in a spirit where God will hear him. And he's trying to prophesy. He's speaking and he's saying things, but nothing's happening. The second one that we at least have to consider is that he's not really prophesying. It's, it's really kind of more of a form of false worship. Because the reason we'd say that is because if he's really prophesying, if the Spirit of God was really, first of all, an evil, evil spirit's just come upon him. Not very likely there's anything real godly going on right now. Not, not only that, the very next part of the passage says what? He's going to seek to kill David. So it's not like he had an incredibly spiritual moment in between those. Evil spirit killed David. Okay, probably not anything significant spiritually is happening in between there. Okay, we can probably safely assume. You may even be able, if you wanted to, it's possible you can even paint the picture of, hey, would that be like when I come to church and I'm so mad or angry at someone Praise be the Lord, the Almighty. God, I can't believe they're here. It makes me mad. Every time I see that person, they disgust me. Let's pray. You know what I mean? There's not a lot of positive spiritual transformation going on when that's our spirit. Very well could be what's going on with Saul right there. Okay, so that's it's probably one of the two. Either he's basically just faking it, or the third one would be that he's just trying to say things that are prophetic and that he wants to be prophetic or, in fact, that he's trying to lather up. Nevertheless, there's probably not anything that's really godly going on, so in the sense of that word prophecy, okay? So when we look at that passage, hopefully that helps us to understand what's going on there a little bit better. Let's read the, continue and to read the rest of the passage here. And so uh, in verse 10, it says that Saul had a spear in his hand. In verse 11... And he hurled it at David, saying to himself, I'll pin him to the wall, but David eluded him twice. So he doesn't do this once. He does it twice. So nothing spiritual going on here. Not good uh, for Saul. Okay, I think we are safe to say this. This is not the a prophecy that at least at the minimum that we would want to emulate. And number two is probably not of the Spirit of God. Number twelve, Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with David. The favor of God is upon him. The blessing of God is upon David, but the favor and the blessing of God is not now upon Saul. And Saul now is consumed with his jealousy. In my opinion, the hedge of protection that had monitored the spirit of Saul and kept him from utter destruction is now being removed. And so he sent David away from him and gave him command over a thousand men on the field. He makes him a field officer and David led the troops in their campaign. And in everything he did, he was successful because the Lord was with him. And when Saul saw how successful he was, he was even more afraid of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David because he led their campaigns. So, we see Saul has experienced the blessing of God. We see he experienced victory. But then because of his sin, he has to endure the consequences, the wages of of his sin, and basically it's the 
he's going to lose the kingdom, or at least his family, his lineage, will no longer enjoy the royalty of the throne. It's going to be given to David. And when that happens, Saul cannot handle it. And a spirit of envy overtakes him. And in that spirit, that is the beginning of the end. That will lead to Saul's utter destruction. That spirit of envy. And I think there's some things that we want to glean about the spirit of envy. We see that it will destroy his ability to think clearly, to think straight, to think logically. And that phrase that we saw, not he, but me. Everything is about Saul. He can't see anything that will occur that is not about him. Even when David shows him kindness and favor, when Jonathan speaks to him, he's so consumed with his envy, he can't hear it. It's all about me. What will happen to me? What will happen to my kingdom? Self-pity begins to set in. And you know, it's interesting. It's such a big deal. If you go back to Exodus chapter um, 17, you see the Ten Commandments. And what's the very last of the Ten Commandments? Thou shalt not covet. It's kind of the mother of all the other sins because most of those other things, whether we lie, we steal, adultery, whatever, because we covet. Because we want what somebody else has. We don't want what we have or we don't think what we have is enough and somebody else has more and we want it. Or either the even sicker mentality of envy is, I have something and I just don't want you to have it. It needs to be just me. And that's kind of where Saul was. Yes, I'm the king right now. I know you will come, but I don't want you to have that either. I just want to hold on to it. I want to possess it. I want to control it. It's mine. That spirit overtakes it. Even if you go back and you look at the seven deadly sins given by the patristic fathers, the early church fathers, what's interesting is the other six, at least they're kind of fun. You kind of get a rush out of them when you start. I mean, you know, the whole lust, the greed, the extravagance. You know what I mean? At least there's some kind of pleasure. But like envy, like it's just bad from the beginning. You know what I mean? It's just like, it's no fun at all. It's just not eating you up, makes you mad and all twisted. I mean, you don't even get any fun out of that sin. You know what I mean? It just completely controls you. I mean, it's just like, it's like the worst. You know, and we don't really like to talk about it. Nobody ever says, please pray for me as I deal with the sin of envy. I mean, it's not one we ever confess. We even admit that we deal with. Please deal with, my, you know, my mother. And she's in the hospital and she has envy. I mean, we don't ever say that. We just kind of glide right over that and... And the truth of it is we all deal with it in, in some level, on some level, don't we? Well, the truth of it is, if we don't recognize that and deal with it, it kills us spiritually. It literally will kill us. Something you have and I don't have, and I think I should have it. Why does he have that house? He, he, I don't think he can really afford that house. He shouldn't even be in that house. And that car, they... I know he doesn't make that much more money than me. How do they afford that? I bet they're going into debt. I, I, that's ridiculous. They shouldn't have that house. Are you really worried about them? Well, that's the spirit of envy speaking right there. Well, well how did she get that purse? I, I had that purse, and she shouldn't have that purse. That's really godly, by the way. <laughs> Who do you think speaking right there? Who do you think is influencing us right there? It's harsh reality. It's one that we don't like to talk about. I mean, look at Scripture. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. This is Old Testament. This is written like almost 3,500 years ago, maybe even 4,000 years ago. You shall not cover your neighbor's house. That's when they had huts and they were living in tents in the desert. 
I mean, we're, we're like way past that. We're like really good at it now. I mean, uh, look at that tent. Can you believe they can afford that tent? No, I mean, what do you think we're doing? You shall not cover your neighbor's wife. I mean, now we put it on billboards. We put it on TV. Put it in magazines. His ox or his donkey. I would have to say that would be our cars today since most of us don't ride donkeys. Or anything that belongs to your neighbor's. 1 Corinthians 13.4 says, Love is patient, love is kind. The two primary aspects about love, patience and kindness, those are the positives, that's what it is. Let me tell you what it's not. You know what the Apostle Paul says, the very first thing that love is not? You want to know what the antithesis of love is? Love is not envy. It's not jealous. Because you know why? Because when we start to envy and become jealous, it will destroy the very fabric of our relationship. And what we're trying to do is hold on to it and manipulate it and control it and keep it and possess it. And when you do that with your spouse and you you become enraged with envy and jealousy... And by the way, I just read a report and this has nothing to do with the Bible. This was a report from Science Digest. It said that Facebook has made people jealous on a whole new level. And more people confess to being jealous and envious because of Facebook than any any other time in history. And that wasn't a Bible reference. I just thought, isn't that amazing? Y'all think I'm anti-Facebook. I'm really not. Uh, I I just watch social network this week, okay, just so you can calm down and not think I'm a complete lunatic, all right? But I just thought it was interesting as you're looking at that. So that we kind of become consumed with that spirit. And where does that lead us? Or are our children... We want to control and manipulate them and we want them to do well and do what we want them to do. And we start trying to live through them. And the more we control them, the, the more they resist us and the more it destroys our relationship with them. Or a friend. I don't want my friend to have any other friends. I want just me to be close to them and not those other people. That's envy. That's jealousy. And can I tell you, it's the exact opposite of what Jesus did. Jesus the God of the universe, the Father, Son, the Holy Spirit, the Son component, comes to earth. It's His Father. It's His kingdom. And He says, I want to bring them all in. People who don't deserve it, who've not earned it, who've not done anything that they should be given favor and grace. Father, I want them to be included. And though they struck Him, and though they killed Him, and though we're disobedient, and though we envy those things that He has blessed us with, He says, I still want them to be included. I want to welcome them in. He's the opposite of our spirit of envy. For He wants to include by Grace. Love is patient and kind. And most of all, love does not envy. Romans 12.15 says, Rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. Love empathizes. Envy wants to capitalize in relationships. So here's a good test for us right here. The Bible tells us, if I'm experiencing and living out the grace of Christ then this is what it will look like, the Bible tells me in Romans chapter 12. I will want to rejoice with those who rejoice. When God shows favor and grace to someone, I will want to celebrate with them. And when they are hurt, I will want to mourn with them. It will hurt my heart because a brother or sister in Christ, the kingdom, the family is hurting, I hurt. The opposite is, when they rejoice, and I think... I can't believe that happened for them. It just God, it bothers me. And you know, they don't deserve that. That's the opposite. That's the envy speaking. That's the spirit of Satan, as Tommy read earlier from James chapter 3. That's where that comes from. 
But the Spirit of God, the Spirit of peace says, I want to rejoice with what God has blessed you, the way that God has welcomed you in the kingdom, the way He's growing you, the way He is using you. And when something hurts, and when somebody falls, I don't go, that's good. I'm so glad they got they had it coming, you know. That's the spirit of envy. The spirit of Christ is, I hurt with you. There's nothing, I think, that paints a more beautiful picture, a more accurate picture, excuse me, of what it looks like than Romans chapter 12 right there. That we weep with those who weep and we rejoice with those who rejoice in goodness and righteousness. I mean, think about it. How did Satan get where he is? How did that all start? Because he was envious. I want to be where God is. I want the same power and authority that God has. And it led to his destruction. How did the first sin occur? I want that piece of fruit. I got all these, but I want that one. It'll make me like God. I want it. Or, I mean, you just keep going and just pass down to the next one. Cain and Abel. Cain, I, I, wanted, I wanted God's favor. I'm going to kill him. I'm, just kidding. I'm not going to put up with that. Where does it all come from? Spirit of envy. Spirit of jealousy. Leads to destruction. That's where it ends to it. But the Gospel is the opposite. It's the message of receiving grace for what you do not deserve. The problem with envy is it ultimately leads you to obsession, to addiction. Addiction. Uh, I think I mentioned to you earlier, I was with a guy who was a former athlete who was also a, um, an alcoholic. And he said, you know what? I could take a little drink right now and I'd be okay, but it's where it would put me tomorrow. And maybe not even tomorrow, but the next day. He said, in 30 days, I'd be off, not off the wagon. I'd be like crazy. I'd probably lose my job. He said, that's where it leads me because I have an addiction. I have an obsession, so I have to stay away. I have to recognize it and have to stay away from it. The same is true for us. Whether it be something that obsesses us physically, emotionally, relationally, when we want to hold on to something so desperately that it becomes our idol, that we would seek, if we can't have it, we want anybody else to have it. It's the Attila the Hun mentality. Attila Hun said, it's not enough for me to win, but everyone else must lose. There is kind of the picture and the essence of envy and jealousy. I need to win and others need to lose. That's when you've become obsessed and that's when it becomes idolatry and it ultimately leads to destruction. And we see, we see this sad story time and time and time again. People who destroy their families, destroy their resources out of envy, out of anger, out of frustration. I'm trying to protect my family and ultimately I destroy it. Saul was trying to keep his kingdom but he was ultimately destroying it. So what do I do about that? I want to give you three principles, things that we do to deal with the envy in our life. Number one is be grateful. Be thankful for what you do have. Express thanksgiving to God daily for the things that He has blessed you with, with your family, your job, where you live, whatever it is. Make you a list of 10 or 12 things and be thankful. Each day in prayer, give thanks to God. If you want to combat the spirit of envy, begin to be thankful for what you do have. And I can tell you, if you're not thankful for what you have, you probably are dealing with a spirit of envy. 
Number two, confess it. Say, God, this is a weakness I have. I struggle with looking at my right and my left with what people have, whether it be their spouse, their kids, their job, their money, their home, their car. God, I confess that to you. Forgive me. Help me to deal with this. I recognize it's a problem in my life. And thirdly, here's the hard one. Pray for those you envy. Are you kidding me? I mean, that's because envy is always attached to something, isn't it? It's not just like, hmm, I'm just envious. Not, nothing really. just wish I didn't have what I have or wish I had something else. That's not where we are. It's always attached to somebody or something. It's usually attached to someone. Begin to pray for them. I don't feel like it. Hey, you didn't feel like getting up and taking a shower and getting out of bed this morning either, did you? Okay, we don't feel like getting up and going to work most of the time. There are some things we do because they're right, not because we feel like it. And as we do it right, it becomes a natural habit. Okay? So, begin to pray for them. If the Spirit of God really resides in you, if Jesus is really Lord of your life, then be grateful, confess your fault, and begin to pray for those that you so are obsessing or you so are envying and are are jealous of. And, um, you know, I, I remember early in my... When I was, matter of fact, just starting out in ministry... Had a situation where a guy, you know, classic thing we've all dealt with. A guy seemed to be doing well, and and I noticed he wasn't ethical in some things, and it was just really bothering me, you know, that he wasn't ethical and he was doing well, and I was getting looked over and yada yada. You know the story. You've been there, done that, lived that. Maybe you're there right now, and so it just bothered me. And I remember talking to someone, hearing a message, say, "Hey, I want you to begin to pray for uh, your enemies." I think was how it was kind of. Kind of thrown at me, and so I literally turned my watch upside down, and I committed for the next forty days to pray for this guy. And it was it was neat, you know. Can I tell you, nothing really changed with him immediately, or as a matter of fact, anytime soon. But it changed my heart. I noticed that when I first did, it, I mean, it was just like everything I could do because every time I would look to see what time it was, I had to pray for him. And it was killing me. Like I, it got to where I just didn't even look at the time for about four days. So I was late for like the fourth day at work, and um, and I just had to start praying and saying, you know, God bless him, bless him, and just praying a blessing. And after after a while, it became easier and easier. And by the end of forty days, I was really really playing, praying a blessing upon this guy. And again, I, I wish I could give you a, an, an immediate testimony. I don't have one. You know, he changed. People had revival and all this kind of thing. That didn't happen. But God changed my. And ultimately, he was taken care of on down the road, by the way. Uh, God, be sure your sins will find you out. I'll just leave it at that. But the real truth was the message was about me. It wasn't about him. It was about me and my heart. Today, it's not about somebody else. It's about you. God is speaking to your heart. What is it that possesses your heart? What is it that controls your spirit? Is it the spirit of Christ? Or is it the spiritual flesh that says, me, me, me? What about them? I'd do more if they did more. I'd give if they gave. I would help if they helped. That's the spirit of envy. That's the spirit of the evil one. Today, Jesus says, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest. The God of the universe who sent His own Son and said, I want to welcome all of them in. None of them deserve it. None of them have earned it. But that's what I want to do. And I want them to experience the grace and the love. And so I will die for them. John chapter 17, verse 20. That passage is Jesus prays for His disciples. I will die for them. I will give my life so that they might be included with the Father. Hey, 
There's the goal. There's the standard. And it can only be accomplished as we live through the Spirit of Christ, as we confess, as we are grateful, as we pray the blessing of God in spite of what our flesh says. Do you know that kind of grace? Do you know that kind of love? I want to invite you to come and experience it today. Let's pray. Jesus, thank You for the opportunity to know You, the opportunity to experience grace and salvation, but also, Lord, the opportunity to leave the kingdom life. And that means he who seeks to be first will be last, and he who is last will, seek to, will become first. God, and I, I pray this morning, Lord, that we wouldn't just seek our own life and our own flesh and our own desires, but that we would be willing to put those aside for the kingdom of God, for the grace and the glory of Jesus Christ. Lord, if there's one that doesn't know You today, I pray that You would draw them by the power of Your Spirit. Be glorified. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.